I'm going to give this paper on little paper on uh, prudence and the moral virtues. Uh, and I don't do enough, even in this little paper, to set the, the bigger context, which is, look, all of this takes place within a big life. And part of what we're after is to bring unity to that life, not just goodness, but oneness as well. And um, so it's, it's complex and messy, but every th decision you make is always made within the context of uh, lots of other decisions that are going on in your life. And commitments you make are, are made in the context of lots of other commitments you have in your life. And part of the uh, living a successful life, whether it's a Gentile life or a Christian life, is kind of trying to bring all these things together in some order um, and, and, and to kind of make your life a, a fruitful, successful life by whatever standards you happen to be employed. Well, I shouldn't put it that way. <laughs> Mass murder, no, no. Okay, a good life, you know, in some uh, obvious sense of good. And, and so what I'm, what I'm a little bit worried about is that sometimes because we start focusing on these more technical issues, which are, again, I'd be the last one in the world to, um, to uh, claim that these are not important. It's just that it's so easy to lose sight of the bigger context. And sometimes the discussion of the technical issues loses sight in such a way that it becomes completely divorced from real life and, and just kind of takes on a life of its own. And then the way in which the problems get set up becomes artificial and in the end not useful for anything or anyone. That is not, I, I, I did not hear anything at this conference that made me want to say that person needs a correction right away because he's going to, you know, no. It's just that this is, since I, since I don't do moral philosophy for a, for a living, it's just something I want to say as a kind of outsider, as a, a little bit of a warning, okay? Don't lose that context. And always think of ethics, first of all, in this broader way. And when, you're, when you descend to particulars and get involved in, very, in somewhat technical discussions, never lose that sense of what the bigger picture is. And, and don't try to build, for instance, a moral theory around thoughts about the, the uh, double effect type problems, right? That's, I, to me, that's just the wrong way to go. You have to think more globally, at least as a, to provide yourself with a context, and then, you know, as you're going down to the, to the details, always try to keep that bigger picture in mind. Okay, what am I doing? Uh, this is like my last class or something like that. Okay. <laughs> but remember that for my paper too, because I, I didn't actually say that uh, in the paper. May, there might be some hints of it near the end of it, but uh, anyway, okay. So my assigned topic is St. Thomas on Prudence and the Moral Virtues. And I want to begin by setting this topic within the wider context of a broadly classical, mainly Aristotelian understanding of the relation between cognition and affection in human action. Then I'll make some brief remarks about 
the formal structure of prudence and its relation to the moral virtues, the other cardinal virtues, justice, fortitude, and temperance, a topic on which Aristotle and St. Thomas by and large agree. Now this agreement about form might tempt you to claim that St. Thomas and Aristotle also agree by and large on what the best sort of human life guided by the virtue of prudence will look like. But this claim would be mistaken. And that's what I'm gonna take up at the end of the paper. Okay, the third part. Okay. Now, some of this stuff I've never, uh, well, I guess it's on my website in class notes and stuff. You know, there are certain things, if you don't work in an area, like I haven't worked in moral theory, you, get, you develop all of these ideas and have no, I have no idea whether all this is idiosyncratic or what, but it's the sort of thing that I developed in the privacy of the classroom over the years, right? At least classrooms were pretty private when I was in my teaching career. I know, I know they're just grist for the mill these days. Put your phones away. <laughs> Whatever, whatever happened, are you a Balthazarian now on uh, Twitter or what? <laughs> okay, so the first section is called Aristotle and His Competitors, and this is my postage stamp summary of the history of um, moral theory, at least the, the part of it that's relevant to this talk. So to understand the centrality of prudence within a Thomistic Aristotelian philosophical anthropology, we need to paint in very broad strokes some competing philosophical accounts of the relation between cognition and affection in voluntary action. Aristotle, following Plato, believes that we all begin with a single fundamental desire, a desire for our good. That is, a desire for our own deep happiness or flourishing as human beings. This desire motivates at bottom all of our voluntary actions. Unfortunately, our starting point as human beings is such that the particular goods we begin by desiring as paths to that flourishing and the way in which we desire them cannot in the end provide us with anything close to genuine human flourishing or deep happiness even by Gentile standards. One main reason is that our affections, despite some weaker inclinations to the contrary, are deeply disordered from the start. More specifically, we begin with a narrow and perverted self-love, a self-centered desire for private or autonomous in at least one understanding, well-being. According to Aristotle and Plato, this perverted self-love needs to be and can be transformed into rightly ordered self-love, which includes the desire to will the good for others and to commit oneself to higher and more noble goods that transcend one's own private good narrowly conceived. In the end, our goal is or should be to become individuals who are fit for genuine friendship and self-transcending commitments that entail making sacrifices for a transcendent common good. But on their view, this can all come out of the, that very same basic motivation 
of of uh, willing our own good, but the way in which we see our good changes as we grow, and then in the end, ideally, we go from having <coughs> having a kind of perverted self-love to having a well-ordered self-love. Okay. And if we do that, uh, we kind of, as it were, we go out of ourselves. Okay, so that's what the process is, a kind of going out of ourselves in the direction of others, and in this way we at least approach our own true fulfillment as individuals. Now the transformation from, excuse me, from perverted self-love to rightly ordered self-love essentially involves an extensive program of formation carried out by those who take part in our upbringing and aimed in part at habituating our affections in the right way. The conviction is that we can appropriately moderate our affections, including our concupiscible and irascible passions, along with our will, so as to liberate ourselves from the slavery of perverted self-love. Prudence becomes the central virtue on this scheme because it is precisely the proper use of practical reason that sets the parameters for the escape from disordered passion and malice of will. In particular, the sentient appetite, seat of the passions of the soul, can in its own right become the subject of virtuous habits. But only insofar as it participates in reason, that is, only insofar as it is amenable to being moderated in a manner dictate, dictated by upright practical reason of the sort characteristic of the virtue of prudence. I mean, there's a lot, obviously, this is just touching the surface here, but um, the idea is, just like we have to bring all of our outside parts of our lives together, we have to bring the inside of ourselves together so that we're operating that all the parts of us are operating on the same page and not interfering uh, with each other. And I'll say more about that as we go on. Now, in the Republic, as we well know, Plato had put into the mouths of Glaucon and Adiamantus a powerful argument for what we might call the Hobbesian alternative. I mean, that's one way of, okay, I'll go with that. On this, Hey, this is just a class, right? It's not a paper, so. On this latter view, our basic effective inclination toward the good inalterably issues in what Plato and Aristotle think of as perverted self-love. Our passions are uneducable, and any concession we make to the norms of what we ordinarily call justice is made reluctantly and only in order to salvage as much as we can in less than ideal circumstances of what we want for ourselves. But if we could get away with attaining what we want without compromise, then it would be stupid and irrational to compromise in the name of some allegedly noble alternative. I mean, you, well, you know, if, if you know this part of the Republic, you know how cleverly you can arrange things so that Nobody will find out, blah, 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 okay. Narrow self-interest, a.k.a. perverted self-love, on this view, is just a fixed fact about human life 
that has to be accepted by any moral theory as the basic motive for all human action, and this inclination is embedded so deeply in our psyche as to be inalterable. Reason merely helps us arrange our lives in the most efficient way to attain, in our particular circumstances, the best possible configuration of the objects of our affection. So you get this kind of stark contrast. Um, I mean, one, one view says we're really bad off, but there's some hope here. And the other view says we're really bad off and, and you know, I guess we'll have to make the best of it. Now, of course, to the rescue, John Duns Scotus. <laughs> I always pause after I say John Duns Scotus. Blessed John Duns Scotus. <laughs> and I do, I do have uh, a lot of respect for him, but I think what we have coming up here is one of the worst mistakes in the history of moral theory. <laughs> John Duns Scotus accepted the idea of the inalterably unruly character of our affections. Uh, if, you, if you've been following along uh, the readings the last few days from 2 Corinthians, including today's reading, St. Paul, after all, saint though he was, seemed to complain about his own unmoderated passions. That's what Scotus would appeal to, right? So our inclination toward the good as proposed by sentience, the affectio commodi, which is sort of like the affection, uh, the love for comfort. I mean, I think maybe that's the best way to think about it, the love for sort of some combination of pleasure, comfort, however we think about it, does indeed issue in perverted self-love when allowed to dominate. But fortunately for us, says Scotus, we have a second basic inclination, the affectio justitiae, which is independent of the passions. As rational beings, we desire to make our wills good by conforming them and our actions to God's will as expressed in divine precepts, even when doing so does not serve our self-centered desires. So it's kind of a struggle then between between these two um, affectiones. Hence, on this view, self-love cannot be the motive, as it is for Plato and Aristotle and St. Thomas, cannot be the motive of morally upright action. And our passions are morally relevant, uh, are morally irrelevant in the sense that actions do not derive any positive moral worth from their character one way or the other. On this view, the role of upright practical reason is reduced to demanding more willpower in the service of duty as defined by, uh, as defined by divine precepts and, if need be, in opposition to recalcitrant passions. For the will alone among our appetites is subject to habituation. Um, so I skipped the sentence on Kant. I, I didn't skip it on purpose, but it's fine that I did because now I can read it. And um, Kant, I mean, Kant has a similar view, right? Uh, he appeals instead, obviously, in, instead um, to the precepts that an ideally rational being would autonomously, in Kant's sense, issue to himself. Okay, so he just, I mean, in, in effect, I know. Kant scholars or Scotus scholars are going to go crazy and oh, there's all these other... Okay, I know. But, but really, the big picture is pretty much there. 
you know, it, and it seems pretty much the same, and for the same reasons. Uh, Kant was faced with Hobbes, but we're better than that, just like Scotus says. We're better than, than people who have to be dominated by perverted self-love. We're better than that, but we need another basic uh, inclination, uh, motivation for action in order to um, show that we're better than that, okay? In order, at least theoretically, to undergird uh, the claim that we're better than that, okay? Now, this is a big divide in the history of moral theory. I mean, there are two relevant questions. A, is our basic desire for our own good inalterably self-centered and perverted? B, if so, is there another morally relevant basic desire? Plato and Aristotle answer no to both questions. Scotus and Kant answer yes to both questions. Hobbes answers yes to A and no to B. The differences among these positions have a profound effect on how we think about moral formation and about the possibility and importance of shaping affection and sentiment. Okay, now does that, I mean, it does sound like intro stuff, right? Well, maybe philosophy major stuff, okay, but, okay. What is he doing? Now, Hume's an interesting out, uh, outlier here. Like the others who answer no to question B, no, we don't have this second magical uh, basic motivation. He believes that our ordinary affections supply us with our basic motivation. But unlike the others who answer no to question B, he's an op sort of an optimist, right, who thinks of our affections in their natural state as predominantly benevolent rather than selfish and self-serving. Thus, Hume believes that it's a bad idea to try to reshape our passions. This, he thinks, leads to moral and religious fanaticism. Rather, we have to proceed with care around the edges, as it were, in order to allow our basic benevolence to shine forth. I just spent uh, five days with two of my grandsons, aged five and two. Now, it may not surprise you to know that Hume had little, if any, contact with uh, young children. <laughs> I've had a lot of contact in my life. I've got five granddaughters in South Bend, and I spend a lot of time with them. And they're wonderful, and I love them, and I try, they try to make me better, and I try to make them better. But, wow. <laughs> Benevolence is not the word you ordinarily would use to describe this sort of behavior, especially when you, when you pair them off. I found that a particularly lethal combination was the one I had for these five days, a five-year-old George and a two-year-old, a, a talking two-year-old, so this kid talks early, so it's important that the other kid... So it's either a, a, a five-year-old on the one hand and either a two- or a three-year-old on the other hand, right? I, it's just constant conflict. At one point, and Gabriel goes from uh, protesting George's attempts to dominate him 
to uh, kind of just caving in. I don't know. It's a funny strategy. Now, <laughs> lucky, for, lucky for us, George is a pretty articulate kid, so it's nice to have a juicy quote to kind of to, uh, make this point. George says to Gabriel, Gabriel, I decide what I do, and I decide what you do. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that refutes Hume, but man, and I love, I really love, I love Hume in so many ways, but wow. Uh, I've always thought, you know, almost all my time at Notre Dame, I always thought, you know, if we could just flood this campus with children and make students and faculty members have some responsibility for the lives of others, maybe we'd be a more serious outfit, you know? But anyway, okay. And of course, in this whole discussion, but I'm not going to go there today, we have sort of the Nietzsche of beyond good and evil lurking in the background. Okay, well, that's the end of the first part, so that, that takes care of that. You know all you need to know now about, if you're not in, uh, in moral theory, then if you're doing metaphysics, you're fine, because now you know all you need to know. Okay. Part two, the formal structure of prudence and its relation to affection and the moral virtues. Now, St. Thomas, of course, sides with Aristotle in this dispute, and despite the sort of usage that associates the English term prudent with individuals who are excessively cautious or circumspect, the fact is that phronesis or prudentia that is, the habitually upright use of practical reason in the guidance and execution of one's voluntary acts, both interior and exterior, is critically important for a philosophical anthropology according to which A, reason is the distinctively human element among the animals, B, the best human lives are lived by being guided by reason, and C, the affections of the human animal are amenable to being shaped and formed by reason, amenable to participating in reason within the general moral project of turning, of initially anyway, effectively ordered dis disordered human beings into persons fit for genuine friendship. Of course, this process doesn't happen automatically and typically requires that children and young adults live for many years in community under the tutelage of people like their parents, uh, grandparents and other relatives, even their siblings uh, in some ways, clergy, teachers, coaches, whatever. People who care deeply about them and have some high degree of practical wisdom themselves. But what is right and wrong for children to think, to feel, and to do is taken to be consonant with their own deep desire to attain the highest degree possible of a standard of perfection or flourishing or happiness built into them by their nature. At least that's the way this view thinks about it. Obviously, if you were more influenced by Scotus or Kant, you would find another way uh, well, you would try to make an analogous point. But the conviction here is, and I think parents 
usually see this pretty well. Okay, I don't want to beg the question against other views, but I mean, the idea is, look, well, parents are always saying this particular punishment or this particular discipline, this is for your own good, whether you realize it or not. At least parents should be saying things like that, right? And over time, <clears throat> the kids themselves come to see, oh, you know, it's good that mom and dad give us an early bedtime. I've heard eight-year-olds say this, so it's possible. Uh, you know, because if I don't get enough sleep, I know I'm just miserable the next day, you know, stuff like that. I mean, all hundreds and thousands of little things like this that go into um, not just shaping behavior, but shaping the, the very affections themselves so that things that, would, that made them angry before don't make them angry now. They're able to control that. Not only that, eventually... They're just, I mean, in the best case, you know, here's a kid who's not, just doesn't get angry, except under extreme circumstances anymore, that kind of thing. And also with respect to the other things. So it's a long process, though. Okay. Um, so the kids themselves can even come to understand eventually the internal. Okay, it's an idealization. The internal connection between their own welfare as individuals and the various precepts that help define and safeguard at least the lower limits of acceptable action. This is where we draw the line in this family, okay? Um, okay, I mean, it's an idealization in a lot of different ways. But I don't want to give you the impression that it's inflexible. You know, in, in Aristotle, there are two types of judgment, practical judgment, right? There's anasis, for, which is just good judging in general. But then there's nome, which is good judging in cases where the rules are a little, it's a little fudgy about how the rules should apply, etc. I was just talking to somebody at lunch uh, my brother was visiting uh, a few weeks ago when I was working on this paper, and in order to avoid working on the paper, an imprudent thing to do, um, he had never seen Foyle's War, so we started watching Foyle's War. Uh, Foyle's War is this wonderful uh, British detective series set in, on the southern coast of uh, England, across, right across from France, in Hastings, and uh, it takes place uh, during World War II. So the interesting thing about it is you get the usual problems having to do with crime inter, uh, interlaced with various problems having to do with national security, uh, defense, trying to, uh, to coax the Americans into World War II, you know, to help the British and, and all of this. And so all of these things start coming together. So you get cases like an American who commits murder, but he's going to get away with it, it looks like, because this guy is really crucial to set up this, this uh, Lend-Lease Act, which will give the British about 50 useless ships, but, it's, but the symbolic value of it will be to kind of drag the Americans more into the war. So you can't arrest this guy because he's crucial for this deal, okay? So Foyle has to make a decision about that. What does he do? I'm not telling. Okay. Does he stand on principle? Okay. 
Now, St. Thomas agrees almost completely with Aristotle on the formal structure of prudence, with its potential parts, okay, deliberating, judging, and commanding, principle act. Okay, we've already, we're already familiar with those from previous papers. And with its integral parts, so the integral parts are such that all of them uh, need to be in place, at least not to go wrong in order for there to be good practical reasoning. So there's memory, which I'll say more about later, understanding, sort of understanding of basic principles, docility, shrewdness, which I'll also say a little bit about later on, good reasoning, foresight, or providence. Kind of, you know, you gotta plan ahead in life. How many times have I said that, especially to one of my kids? It seems not to do that. Circumspection, caution, and with its subjective parts, the main divide here being the distinction between the prudence by which individuals govern themselves and the prudence by which those in charge govern multitudes, such as families, uh, military units, cities, universities, small and large businesses, whatever. As usual, St. Thomas adds to Aristotle by drawing clearer distinctions in some cases and by incorporating into his discussion of the parts of prudence insights contributed by Cicero, Macrobius, Augustine, and other Christian and non-Christian uh, post-Aristotelian authors. So St. Thomas is always kind of filling things in and making the discussion a bit more subtle and a, a bit more um, uh, elegant or whatever, tough-minded. Now, according to St. Thomas, the ideal for the well-ordered among our, the ideal is for the well-ordered among our initial effective inclinations to set the ends we strive for. Uh, Steve today uh, was uh, talked about some of the goods that St. Thomas talks about. Uh, actually, it's not that different from the list that the uh, new natural law theorists produce, but of course the Thomas think that uh, these can be weighed and uh, put into or an order, ordering, etc., etc., okay? I can't believe that Steve Long went through that whole paper this morning without one saying, new natural law. Those three words together, okay? In case you didn't get it. Okay, anyway. All right. Um, so the idea is that, that our well-ordered inclinations will set the ends and then the role of prudence is to bring those ends to fulfillment in accord with reason and in opposition to strong inborn counter-inclinations. So the idea is to get, to get the young kids to kind of see the goods in question, to understand why it might be that um, not getting angry at every little thing that happens is going to help you in the long run. But obviously things like that take a long time why uh, temperance in other regards will help you, why being, well, I've got a couple of examples here. In the case of natural of the natural virtues, 
prudence guides the virtues to their mean relative to the temperament of each person. But parents can help you identify that, right? I mean, it doesn't all have to be sort of, oh, I'm, I, this is, I'm undertaking the project of turning myself into a person fit for friendship. No, I mean, that's what, <laughs> we're all involved in this, okay? And, and when you don't have other people involved, then that's a problem, and, and uh, we see some of the things that, that uh, come from that problem. For instance, um, okay, so just, just to give a couple of uh, gripping examples, for instance, some of us are not at all tempted to eat cheese puffs. I know there are some of you out there. Uh, so you don't have a problem, whereas others can't eat one cheese puff without eating the whole bag. So we, uh, those of us like that must at first limit ourselves to say, uh, say one bag a week. That seems seems reasonable. And then maybe work your way down from there. You know, since my wife died, I do all the grocery shopping, right? So, not that she wouldn't spoil me, but I don't remember being into cheese puffs when she was alive. Okay. Again, some of us begin with a high degree of physical courage, so to speak, whereas others must overcome strong fear in order to undertake any new physical adventure, learning to ride a bike or swimming or whatever it might be. In the case of justice, the mean, if we may call it that, is a reasonable balance in which each individual receives his due. In this way, the virtues grow together, and as they do, it becomes more difficult for disordered passion or malice of will to distort one's deliberations, <coughs> judgments, and commands. Okay. Um, you know, okay, no, I'm just going to read now. At least by retrospective reconstruction, we can see that our deliberations consist in the formulation of practical chains of reasoning based on our understanding of first principles, whatever basic moral principles, fundamental principles of action, whatever, our, our memories, or better, our experiences as we remember them, okay, little danger there, our aptitude for sizing up a situation and devising alternative, I mean this is the, the uh, scholarly way of putting it, devising alternative chains of practical reasoning issuing in different actions and patterns of action, okay? Some of us, uh, you know, are quicker than others at, at thinking about possibilities. What are the possibilities of action? Some of that is just quick thinking. But sometimes, as I'll say later on, it depends on how good a person you are, you know? If I, as I become a better person, I'm, I become all of a sudden magically more creative in thinking of um, ways in which I can help this particular person or that, or, or uh, accomplish this particular thing, okay? so. And that's the point I wanted to make here, is that um, the uh, okay that all of these uh, at all of these stages, understanding basic principles, our memories, our aptitude for sizing up a situation, devising alternative claims, at all of these stages, there can be 
effective influence, either for for the better or for the worse. Um, okay. In some cases, says St. Thomas, our deliberation is flawed by precipitateness. Precipitatio, which St. Thomas lists as the first basic sin against prudence and which may proceed either from an excessive desire for pleasure or delight or from a prideful contempt for the rule of reason, uh, the rebellious child, at least on this occasion. In either case, the use of right reason is bypassed completely and disordered affections rule the day. You're just like an animal, because you kind of go straight from sentiment to action, right? Don't act like an animal, said mom. Similar considerations apply to the next step, which is to judge which of the alternative chains of reasoning are acceptable. Once you, once you take a, 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 a chain of practical reasoning issuing in a particular sort of action as acceptable, you've consented to it, which is important um, in Catholic uh, practice because uh, you're guilty of, the, of a sin for consenting, even if you never carry it out, right? Uh, which of the alternatives, if any, so that the consent there is being used in a somewhat different sense from uh, consent in, uh, in modern uh, newspapers or whatever. Uh, we don't have newspapers anymore, okay. Sorry, I'm just adapting to the uh, modern world. Um, or, and if any, which one is, is uh, most worthy of choice? Or if, if there are a bunch of them tied, um, we can exercise uh, choice in cases like that too. And the choice is always, is always attached to a whole line of reasoning. So why did you choose this? I chose this because, and you give, you give the argument leading up to it, even though that by itself doesn't rule out all the other arguments, you can still, you can still make that decision, and it's a free decision. You could have done otherwise. Why didn't you do otherwise? Well, because of the line of reasoning. Well, but if you had chosen C instead of B, what would you say then? Because of that line of reasoning, right? I always have a reason. You know, sometimes uh, determinists try to trap you. Well, it's just arbitrary. No, it's not arbitrary. If there's a line of reasoning that you're following and you say, here, because I really like cheese puffs, you know. You you saying that's the best? Well, it seemed to me to be the best at the time. Okay. Um, when we make bad judgments, leading either to bad acts of consenting or bad acts of choosing, this is an instance of another of the basic sins against prudence, inconsideratio the failure to take account of what we ought to have taken account of. And this, again, is often due to a disordered passion, anger, envy, desire for pleasure. They all figure prominently in the, uh, in the uh, treatise on prudence. St. Thomas insists, though, that the principal act of prudence is command. The act of reason, oh man, I'm going way over here. The act of reason by which we determine that this act, which has previously been judged best and, is, and chosen, is to be carried out here and now. The gap here is familiar to us. 
I mean, again, if you take this into a real life, you've got, you know, you've got all these chains of reasoning crisscrossing, and you're thinking about a whole bunch of different things that you want to accomplish. Here's what I have to do today. Here's my schedule. Okay, and so at a certain point, A, I might say, okay, at 2 o'clock, I'm going to do this. And it's already been thought out, judged best, chosen. <clears throat> if you're like me and a little bit anal about driving, you've not only said, I'm going to pick this kid up at this time, but here's the route I'm going to take, okay? It isn't always the fastest, but it's the most pleasant. I, I can't tell you how many times I heard, if mom had been driving, we'd be home by now. <laughs> she was a speeder, what can I say? Um, and, and again, if we fail to carry out good choices, sometimes this is because of inconstancy. Uh, we, even though we've made this decision, we get sidetracked because, oh, what's that? I mean, a second bag of cheese puffs wouldn't be that bad, you know? Maybe I should. Or negligence. And that can be either, um, I mean, sometimes you can have uh, inculpable negligence, I suppose, or, well, yeah, something like negligence. You could actually have forgotten. I thought John was going to try to get away with that today, but he came through. Uh, you know, I wanted to do this at 2 o'clock, but oh, forgetful me, I forgot to set an alarm. Right? I mean, it's so easy to set alarms these days. So technology has an influence here. Well, did you really forget to do it, or did you not do it on really on purpose sort of because this wasn't a you know maybe this isn't I'm supposed to meet this person oh this is a tricky relationship you know all sorts of things can come can come into this I'm going to uh, okay I got to get to the last part sorry um, there is a how do, how does this work exactly um, how, is it, how is it that a particular uh, judgment I make or a particular act of temperance can belong both, uh, the judgment can belong both to prudence and to temperance? Uh, St. Thomas brings this to a head at the beginning of the treatise on justice in a question in which he asks, is judgment the main act or the principal act of justice, of the virtue of justice? And the answer is yes. But the first objection says, Look, um, judging has to do with cognition, and it's prudence that perfects the cognitive power, whereas justice is a virtue of the will. Well, what St. Thomas says is the following. In all these subject matters, two things are required for correct judgment. One of them is the power itself that produces the judgment, and in this sense, judgment is an act of reason, since it belongs to reason to fix or determine something. The other is the disposition of the one who judges, because of which he is fit to judge correctly. And in this sense, in those matters that pertain to justice, the judgment proceeds from justice, just as in those matters that pertain to fortitude, the judgment proceeds from fortitude. 
So then, a judgment is an act of justice insofar as justice is inclining one to judge correctly, whereas it is an act of prudence insofar as prudence produces the correct judgment, okay, or the judgment, he says here. Okay. Um, well, I started about 10 minutes late, right? Now. Okay. Okay. I, okay, I'm going to do some of this in... Chaos ensues, okay. Um, the third part of the paper is way beyond and even contrary to Aristotle. Now, given all this agreement between Aristotle and St. Thomas, one can be tricked, as it were, into thinking that Aristotle and St. Thomas agree completely when it comes to the virtue of prudence, with St. Thomas tacking on a few details having to do with the afterlife as Christians conceive of it. But I'm not going to argue that this would be a mistake, for when we repeat the platitude that St. Thomas baptized Aristotle, we have to remember that St. Thomas had a very high church understanding, so to speak, of baptism and its effects. The result is that if we were to stop here, we would not be anywhere close to St. Thomas's understanding of the significance of the virtue of prudence, at least materially materially speaking, with respect to the, the actual content of it, or what a, what a, a life um, that was led by the virtue of prudence, what it would look like. I mean, this should be perfectly obvious in a way, but maybe not. Okay, the prelude skip. Um, it's remarkable that one of the most widely used 20th century translations of St. Thomas's treatise on the virtues, originally published by Prentice Hall in 1966, actually omits the last three questions of that, of that treatise, namely the questions on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the Beatitudes, and the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Yet if you don't appreciate the absolutely central role St. Thomas attributes to the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the living out of the best sort of human life, then you have completely missed the Thomistic boat as far as the virtues and especially prudence are concerned. I used to hesitate to say that I have no hesitation at all about this. The whole second part of the Summa Theologiae, supplemented by sections of the third part, is aimed at describing in a systematic and philosophically sophisticated manner the elements that need to be in place for one to live a Christian life successfully, supplemented by an exhaustive survey of possible pitfalls. And upon close examination, that life looks very different from the life of Aristotle's paradigmatically good man. In fact, there's reason to believe that it is precisely a virtuous Gentile of the sort that Aristotle takes to be approaching the moral ideal who would be the most reluctant to undertake what Lumen Gentium famously termed the call to holiness, which is, of course, the ideal that St. Thomas has in mind. Pieper puts the problem this way. He says, it's not true that the greatest susceptibility for such discord between the natural and the supernatural lies in the lowest realm of the natural life, in, say, the resistance of the sensual natural will to supernatural duty. 
Rather, the peril is most present in the confrontation between the highest natural virtue and the highest supernatural virtue, that is to say, in the connection between natural prudence and supernatural charity. It's not the sinners, but the prudent ones, who are the most liable to close themselves off from the new life which has been given by grace and to oppose it. Typically, natural prudence courts this danger by tending to restrict the realm of determinative factors of our actions to naturally experienceable realities. Christian prudence, however, means precisely the throwing open of this realm and in faith informed by love, the inclusion of new and invisible realities within the determinants of our decisions. Thus, Peeper. To begin with, recall St. Paul's abortive visit to Athens, the center of Greek intellectual culture, where his message was greeted with skepticism by some and hesitation by others, and the others were saying something like, hey, let's talk more about this sometime. Perhaps we can arrange one of our famous Athenian summer philosophy conferences. (laughs) And of course, the New Testament contains no letter to the Athenians, whereas there are two letters to the somewhat unruly crowd, bunch of new Christians living in Sin City, Corinth, right? Not known, to put it mildly, for its love of serious philosophical discussion. Okay, I admit this is not a particularly strong hook to hang my head on, my heavy head, but ask yourself the question, what if Aristotle had been there? Or maybe better, would Aristotle's well-developed conception of the virtues, especially prudence, and of the best sort of human life have made him more receptive than others to Paul's preaching? Even that's not exactly the right question. Suppose Aristotle were actually living according to, and had the, had the theory and was also living accorded, uh, according to it, would that have made him more amenable? You know, perhaps we already have an answer to this question. At least some of Jesus' opponents in the, among the scribes and the Pharisees seem to have been genuinely decent men who, unlike others among their colleagues, were sincere seekers after the truth and not moved to reject Jesus by envy or anger or a lust for power. Maybe the best example for us to light upon, though, is the rich young man of the Synoptic Gospels, who seems on the surface like a perfect Jewish counterpart to Aristotle's good man. He approaches Jesus, undoubtedly moved by Jesus' reputation as a teacher, prophet, and miracle worker, someone who looks to be wise and worthy of trust. The young man clearly has a sense that there may be something more to life that he's missing out on, despite the fact that he's already morally upright and has enough material resources to be or to become a shining example of Aristotelian magnanimity and magnificence. St. Mark tells us that Jesus looks upon him with love. Yet when Jesus tells him that he needs to make a radical change, sell everything and follow me, he balks and walks away in sadness. It would be wrong, I think, to conclude that the young man is avaricious and thus not morally upright after all by Aristotle's standards. 
Instead, he has a sort of attachment to his wealth that at one one and the same time seems reasonable. I mean, I'm a dad. Suppose one of my kids had a a good chunk of money and uh, you know met met Jesus and oh wow, I don't know. And yet makes him fearful and unreceptive to what is clearly a prompting of the Holy Spirit to leave his comfort zone out of love for and trust in Jesus. He wants to be self-sufficient and autonomous in a way that can't accommodate the radical change suggested by Jesus. From a Christian perspective, the young man acted imprudently, at least in part because he was afraid to expand so fear expand his understanding beyond what Pieper calls naturally experienceable realities. And for this reason, he was not docile enough to accept the advice given to him in friendship by our Lord. This was not so much a failure to live up to a lofty but impersonal standard of perfection of the sort outlined by Aristotle, as it was a failure to trust a person whom he himself had sought out as a guide. In short, it was a failure of love. The rich young man was unwilling to do what Peter and Andrew and James and John and especially Matthew had done before him when Jesus had looked upon them with love. Namely, give up everything to follow Jesus. I'm reminded of Chesterton's comment that many of the apparently crazy, a.k.a. imprudent, quote-unquote, things done by St. Francis that strike moderns who are otherwise attracted to him as dark and even sinister, his long hours of prayer, his severe fasts, bodily mortifications, kissing lepers, the striking combination of magnanimity, yay, with humility, ooh. <laughs> you know, his magnificent but unselfconscious interventions, his embrace of the stigmata, make perfectly good sense if thought of as the actions of one madly in love. You just make that little gestalt switch that Chesterton invites you to make. Think of a guy who wants this girl really bad. According to St. Thomas, whereas perfect prudence guides the moral virtues of justice, fortitude, and temperance, it itself is guided by charity, the supernatural love of God and of neighbor for the sake of God. The focus of the Christian way of life is a trinity of persons to be loved and not an impersonal standard of flourishing to be aimed at. There's a big difference between, say, wanting to make myself into the sort of basketball player who hits 90% of his free throws and wanting to become the best free throw shooter I can become out of love for and gratitude to God. You might not, in that case, it might be hard to tell the difference on the surface, right? But it's what's going on inside. This changes everything, really, especially when it's embedded within the entire Christian story of the history of salvation and the understanding that even now we participate in everlasting life, more specifically in the very inner life of God. It changes how we think about human nature in general, 
Human nature is subject to the effects of original sins, and this explains our disordered starting point. It changes how we think of our failures. We rejoice because we can be forgiven and do not despair out of a deceptive desire for self-sufficiency. It changes how we think about suffering and death. They become a necessary part of the story as we join them to Christ's suffering and death. You know, no day without the cross. It changes how we think about the ordinary events of every day and our ordinary interaction with family, friends, and acquaintances. These are all possible occasions of grace. The list could go on. In fact, you could tack Father uh, Thomas Joseph's homily from this morning's Mass as homily on Thomas More and uh, John Fisher into this uh, too and just use them as an example um, and compare their actions to the actions of virtually everyone else uh, of any importance in uh, England at the time. The list doesn't have to go on, though, because I'm just making the point that Pieper was making in the passage cited above, that what's going on inside someone who is perfectly prudent on St. Thomas's account is very different from what's going on inside someone who's perfectly prudent on Aristotle's account. And this will affect our acts of deliberating, judging, and commanding. It will affect what we might call the tenor of the integral parts of prudence, our basic understanding of the world, ourselves, and our goals, our criteria for choosing mentors, our conception of what counts as reasonable caution or circumspection. In, in addition, those who follow Christ closely will have the constant expectation of being prodded out of their latest comfort zone. Almost like Nietzsche's free spirit, who's constantly reevaluating himself, right, in the status quo, except that in the case of the Christian, the movement is always ideally in the same direction, no radical reevaluation, uh, 180 degree turns. And in the same direction in this case is that of progress in self giving love of God and self giving love of neighbor for the sake of God. Now, I have a couple of quotes here that try to nail this down, but I'm way over anyway, so, um, and I even end with a little thing. I'll put the rest of this up on, on my website for anybody who would be interested. Um, let me just read one more paragraph. So as St. Thomas sees it, baptism affects an enhancement of the very essence of the human soul, so that by it we become images of the image of God the capital image of God, by divine adoption, and share by experience, even in our present state, in the inner life of the Holy Trinity. What flows from this so-called habitual grace are the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity, the infused virtue, moral virtues, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. In other words, a complete overhaul of the individual's natural, cognitive, and effective powers, a new creation, as it were. And then all of that then becomes the matter uh, for all of those acts that we talked about before as constituting the virtue of, of prudence. And they also become safeguards against uh, uh, interference of the wrong sort uh, from our affections. Okay.